very, very special guest today is John Michael Hausen, better known to a lot of people as John Michael Hollywoodhausen. Oh, that's a long time ago, Lily. <laughs> it is indeed. And we've been friends forever as well. That's right. We were neighbours years ago. Years ago, back yeah. in Los Angeles. And Bo in Eastern Gin Balaclava. Down in Balaclava Caulfield as well. Yeah. But we met in Los Angeles we and now got we're... to know each other. We did. And now we're yeah. both back yeah. here in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. Do you know a funny story about the Hollywood thing? Mike Walsh used to call me that on his television show, which I did for years and years. And they don't do television like that anymore, unfortunately. And so John Michael Hollywood, Hollywood House and what so. And there was a, a guy in Sydney who was a sort of a race course, what would you call him? He was a, a, a guy, authority on racehorses. Mm-hmm. His name was Hollywood George Edzer. <laughs> and uh, I was in the, uh, the, what was the name of the hotel up in King's Cross, very famous hotel with a bar with show business and racing identities, etc. Et he used to hang out. And a guy came up to me one day and he said, what's going to win at uh, the 4th at Randwick and what's going to... I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you're the tipster. I said, wrong Hollywood. You want Hollywood George Edza. I'm Hollywood. John Michael Hollywood Housen. I said, if you want to know about the movies, I can tell you. That the is races, hilarious. No. Now, John Michael, one of the reasons I really wanted you on this show is because you have one of the best spirits of anybody that I know. You are so positive you're always doing amazing things you're supposed to be retired now but you're oh, actually I, I busier like than that ever word. it's a dreadful word retirement i mean i have a friend who's 85 and who just came back from with his wife from bali and he said i'm overwhelmed by the amount of work waiting for me because he's into property management and I said, you should be a couch potato. He said, I'd go mad. And I think I would too, you know. Absolutely. And that's nothing to do. So some of the things you're doing now, you know, people would look at your life and think that you had just the best life ever. But from what I'm seeing, you've really got the best life ever right now. And the best life is every day of your life. If you, you wake up and you're not in the obituary column, then it should be the best day of your life. Um, yeah, well, you know, some years ago, I started getting interested in the writing the musical theatre. I've always loved musical theatre. The first show I ever saw was Evie Hayes and Annie Get Your Gun at the Her Majesty's Theatre. And I've loved the musical theatre ever since. And some many years ago, I wrote my first musical, which was a show called Razzmatazz, uh, set in Little Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, in the 1920s, because that was a pretty racy part of town. I also wrote on the last pantomime I ever did at the Tivoli, called The Clown That Lost Its Smile, Smile. And it was based on a, the um, Channel 10 show I wrote and was in, at the Magic Circle Club, and it was the most lavish pantomime. It really looked like a folly show. And the funny part about it, we did uh, two, three performances a day or whatever, and the curtain would go up, and most of the stalls were filled with adults because they'd come and see this fabulous, fabulous show. It really was, thanks to our wonderful costume designer, uh, the late Ted... Uh, Ted Dunn, who was Fred Bear, and uh, the set design and the whole thing. So that was marvellous as well, doing pantomime. 
Um, I so wrote, you started off in children, working with kids well, and doing first, children. I wrote show. children's television, Magic Circle Club at Channel 10, which led into Adventure Island at uh, the ABC. And I played, I wrote the show, wrote the lyrics, Bruce... Uh, Bruce Rowland did the music, the wonderful composer Bruce Rowland. He did the music and we had two songs in every show. God, how we did it, I don't know. Um, I mean, we did. You know, just did it. You know, it's one of those, how do we do it now? I think, how did we do it? At the time, we just did it. And uh, how did you how did you get started in all of that? To well, start uh, I was uh, writing a variety show. I lived in England for some years and did, did a lot of... You were of, born uh, in Australia. Hmm? You were born oh, in yeah, Australia. Oh, yeah, in Yeah. And uh, went to England and for some years and... Um, I wrote for magazines and whatever there and used to do um, sort of uh, spec scripts. Um, I did some television shows in England, um, including some stuff for That Was The Week That Was with David Frost, which was a sensation at the time. And I used to write comedic lines for comedians. I'd go around the various pubs where they had comedians and see their act and did say afterwards, do you want me to write some lines? And they said, yeah, write them, and if they're any good, we'll pay you. Now, what got you out to England at that time? Because oh, everybody went to England. Everybody time. went to England everybody in those days? England. You know, that was a bright passage, you know, every young... Co- and I must tell you, most kids wanted to get out of Melbourne because it was so damn boring. <laughs> I mean, it really was. It was a very... If I, I mean, one of the things, because everything was closed on a Sunday, it was very, very puritanical. You know, the pub shut at six and there were some nice restaurants and we used to go to marvellous dance halls around. Um, there was the, um, the, the the rowing club down at Albert Park Lake and a place called the um, St Columbus Church in 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 Elwood. They had a marvellous hall there, dances and... Uh, place off St Kilda Road, I can't remember now, but there were dance halls, they were the thing, there was no drinking. In fact, if you had a ball, if you went to a ball at somewhere like the Palais Dance or whatever, you had to take your liquor in a kit bag. <laughs> they never sold liquor, wow. you had to take your own in a kit bag. So, but back then it wasn't so much what are you going to do with the rest of your life as what do All I want to do? you knew you wanted to get out of Melbourne. One of the things that... Uh, we used to, I mean, this is how desperate we were. You could get tickets to go on board the various liners as sort of a day trip, go and walk around and have a look at the ship. We used to do that every Sunday. We'd go down to Port Melbourne without clutching our tickets from the shipping lines and go on these ships like the, the Orsova, the Himalaya, and these various wow. big liners, the Strathnava, and we'd walk around and say, oh, I'll go in, I'm going to England, I'll go on this one or that one. Or it turned out we actually went to England on a, 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 a what would you call it, a tub uh, <laughs> from the Sitmar line called the Fair Sky. Uh-huh. And it was filled with young Australians making the great escape. And the funny part about it, I, I came from a fairly... Um, tolerant sort of household. I always growing up with people having a drink and it was no big deal. In fact, my friends were the same way. But there were a lot of people that had come from very restricted homes where they never were allowed to have a drink. The moment they got on that ship and it was halfway down Port Phillip Bay, they were on the booze and they stayed on the booze all the way to England. Oh, gosh. Whereas we, we were used to it, you know. So it just goes to show they were like... Uh, they were like bulls being let out of the out of the pen. Um, it and was, did you go on your own, or were there oh, no, a bunch no, of you? Oh no, no, it was a group of friends. And and my 
one of my closest friends now back from each day he stayed on and uh, for years decades and became quite a successful uh, actor in repertory and and uh, did some shows in the West End and whatever and he came back about 10 years ago and he lives in in uh, uh, North Caulfield Ooh. so uh, that's I would say no and another one lives over in um, oh god knows where but anyway uh, most so of them, got... unfortunately most of them have gone to that great fun parlour in the sky uh, but I have some friends in Sydney that we met on the ship that remained friends and I became a godfather to their children and and so it was great relationships were formed and uh, we were not habitués of what an area called uh, Kangaroo Valley you know there's Australians I thought that was boring I really didn't we didn't go to England to mix with Australians in Kangaroo Valley which a lot of people did so I wasn't one of those Australians we mixed with uh, all sorts of people from all around the world and but the, and I got to love I got to love uh, Britain uh, and Ireland and particularly in, in England the great tolerance for everything that at that time you know the it was like a dog being left off a leash because wow. you know it was very open and compared to Melbourne I mean there were a lot of restrictions and things even there with booze and whatever but but compared to Melbourne it was very open and and of course you had the theatre in London which was to me just so you were marvelous. always drawn to theatre always so yeah I loved I just loved watching great talent do things and I saw many great stars working in in uh, Britain and later on funny enough I got to know a few people uh, like Albert Finney for instance wow I saw him do Luther on the stage and he was a huge star at the time because he'd done Tom Jones the movie which was a sensation. Were you working in theatre over there as well? No, I never worked in the theatre. I, I just wrote lines for comedians and right. some television shows, but I wrote for them. Bread and Butter came from writing for the magazines. Oh. And uh, and one of them was, I wrote for a fashion magazine, which took me into sort of a, a wonderful world of uh, high fashion and and menswear. A lot of the big designers were just getting into menswear. So I was writing about their their forays into menswear. And mm. I met a lot of the top designers that had gone into menswear, like Sir Hardy Amy's and names forgotten now, and, uh, Victor Stiebel and all sorts of people that were very famous. And the same in Paris with Pierre Cardin and people like that. So I met them, interviewed them, talked about their range and wrote stories in the, the magazines about the latest things. They all started off designing ties. Wow. And then they went into belts, and then they went into shirts. <laughs> and, they went, they, and I met a lovely Jewish gentleman in, in uh, London called Harry Rail Brook. And Harry Israel Brook, sorry. And he had a company called Rail Brook. And he made, he was the first to really come out with fabulous shirts and with with no real fashion shirt <laughs> not just a shirt with buttons up the front but but marvelous patterns and collars and whatever and uh, I promoted him a lot in the magazine because I just thought it was great that you you, you put on a suit you might wear five days a week but with putting one of Harry's shirts on you lifted the whole thing you know it was wonderful so you just started writing or you actually got a job at a magazine writing well, yeah, or yeah, that's what I did, and that and the fashion thing. And I went to the various clothing fairs, the um, Milan uh, 
was one, and and uh, I think they had one in Cologne and and uh, somewhere in. Sounds like you had an amazing. It was time. a champagne life on a beer income. It really <laughs> was, and you know I met marvellous. I mean the fashion world was was. Uh, was well, in those days, the fashion world was, was the Well, there was world. still there still was the the great um, designers in the women's wear. As I said, a lot of them went into men's wear, but I used to see a lot of the collections, and and they were the great designers. I mean, fashion was fashion. They they did their their summer fashions in winter and their winter fashions in summer and whatever, and uh, and it was quite marvellous to see. Um, great artists, and they are artists at work. Absolutely, but so why would you? Why did you come back? How long? Because I got homesick. You did. What did that? No, feel I, like? I mean, I suppose that sounds crazy. I, I wanted to come home. I promised my mother that I would uh, would come home. You know, quote next year. Well, next year came and went, and came and went, and came and 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 I thought, my have a, I had a darling grandmother I loved dearly, and I thought, you know, I better go home because Nana may not be long for this world. Who knows? Now, As did, it was, she did. She was lived a long time. Now, did you do the phone calls once a week? Because I know in those no, days, no, you it couldn't. Was... You yeah. know how much phone call cost in those days? How much? And oh, a fortune more than I could afford, and there was no uh, internet or whatever. So you wrote letters. How wonderful! You actually sat down and wrote a letter. I made sure I did about if uh, not only a letter, but a sort of postcard a couple of times a week. And uh, if you wanted to make a phone call to Australia, believe it or not, you would ring up. I suppose the British version of P, the BMG, as it was, who controlled all the telephones, and made a booking for a phone call. Gosh! So you'd say, "I'd like to make a booking to us for Australia on Friday at six o'clock, or whatever," and then you'd sit by the phone waiting for it to ring. And two of my flatmates, a wonderful couple, Lynn and Terry Poults, a brother and sister, and they're still in Sydney, and I'm Godfather Lynn's son. And uh, is now when I makes me a, a, a great grand grand a god grandfather. You know, <laughs> Timmy's all grown up with a family of his own. But Tim and uh, but uh, Lynn and Terry came from a wonderful family in Sydney. Their father was a bookmaker and whatever. So you know, really marvellous. And my dad had been in the racing business, so we had a lot to talk about. Anyway, they'd sit by the phone, the phone would ring, and it was mum and dad at the other end, and oh. they'd cry through the whole phone call. Oh. They cried, oh, mum and dad. Do you remember how much it was? Because when I went oh, to America no, 30 to. years ago, yeah. a call from America to Australia was like $2 a minute. Something like that. It was and a I lot thought of that money. was a lot. You didn't do it too often. No. You relied on the parents to call you. Or rather than you call them, but uh, it was it was uh, those days have gone through. But they were one. I'm glad I lived those. And because travelling in Europe was much more fun. Apart from the fact there was no terrorism, you know, you were safe everywhere, um, and the drug culture hadn't happened, mm. which is wonderful. And uh, it was all exciting, but it was there. You weren't flooded out by tourists everywhere. Mm. You know, Noel Coward wrote a song called "Why Do the Wrong People Travel, Travel, Travel When the Right People Stay at Home," <laughs> and I think that was true. You know, too many people, too many millions of people travelling, and I mean, we were able to go into places at that time and walk into into museums and be the only peer person there or the wow. only crowd group there, 
and uh, it was it was totally different because I mean there were millions travelling, but not to the point that there are today. Because if you wanted for, in America from America, if you wanted to travel to you, mostly you went by liner. I mm. mean the big jets started to happen in the late fifties, early sixties, but it, that they didn't take off until really the late sixties, where they were dumping thousands and thousands of people every day. So it was a um, it was a much more civilised time. I feel like I'm talking about the 18th century and doing the grand tour. But it's not. But You're it's talking not. about it's only 19... Few decades ago, you yeah, know. Yeah, 1950? No, 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 in the early 1960s. 60s. We went to England on July the 20th, 1960, sailing out of Port Melbourne on the Fair Sky. There you are, remember that. <laughs> wow. And you came back? In 1965, I think, four or five. And yeah. With every intention of staying back No, yeah? not really. I came back, I thought I'd see Mum and Nana and whatever. I had itchy feet. But Channel 10 was beginning. And I thought, as I've done all this comedic writing and stuff, and uh, I had a bit of a track record... I went to see them and said, I think you need a good writer. And they gave me a job on a show called The Ray Taylor Show, uh, which lasted about six months, I think. See, Channel 10 was Channel O in those days. Yes, And I couldn't remember. be received all over Melbourne. There were pockets of Melbourne that didn't get it. And uh, anyway, so... Uh, I loved writing for the Ray Taylor show. I don't know how many people watched it, but we we was quote controversial unquote. I mean, we were the first show to do political satire, and Australians have not seen that. And when you did a joke about the premier or whoever, oh, they thought this was dreadful. How dare you make jokes about the premier or politicians or or people of authority? What you a just long way we've that. come. Yeah, it was the first. <laughs> First political satirical show on air, yeah. So, and Ray Taylor, the star, I've forgotten by most, was a genius. And uh, he really was. So I can't say I remember him. No problem. No, it was up. a long time ago. People yeah, yeah. don't. People don't. Darling, people don't remember what happened last year, let alone <laughs> 40, 50 years ago. Anyway, uh, Ray. Um, was marvellous and had a marvellous personality and and uh, uh, very very sardonic and whatever not not loved by anybody everybody but he he was just right with that sort of marvellous view of the world and I love writing political satire see because I'd seen all of that in England ah but we didn't have it here yeah. <coughs> and but then you went from that to children's theatre yeah but that's that they were getting onto that what happened was the show ended. And uh, because, I, I mean, it was it got brave reviews and those who watched it loved it, but not enough people watched it because of our strange signal, the strange channel to O signal. Anyway, it was cancelled and um, as I was sort of leaving the building, a man called Godfrey Phillip came up to me and he had been working on their children's show, which was not too successful. And he said to me, would you like to do write a children's show. I said, I can't, what are you talking about? I write political satire. He said, no. He said, you've got a marvellous approach to, I think you could. So I thought about it and I sat down and wrote 
the Magic Circle Club, a fantasy show set in a funny a magic island and, you know, there was a Mother Hubbard who lived in the cupboard and he actually did, played by Fred Tupper who had been one of Melbourne's top race callers and he'd retired <laughs> and wanted to keep working. And I said, would you like to play the dame in a pantomime? And he said, I'd love to. So we had Freddie Tupper, we had Colin McEwen, Ernie Bourne, um, Ted Dunn as Fred Bear, me as Fifi Bear, um, and the show was hosted by a lady called Nancy Cato. Um, anyway, it turned out to be a rip-roaring success, a rip-roaring success, and Channel 10, Channel O switched to Channel 10, which made it better, and the show went national, and everywhere we went... Uh, for personal appearances, we were mobbed by thousands, and I mean thousands of kids. In Perth, they actually had to close off St George's Terrace. Wow. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Anyway, Channel 10, for reasons best known to themselves, just after two or three years, really sort of decided, I mean, they weren't in today, everything's into merchandising. And, and we wanted to go into merchandising. We said, why don't we have, a, you know, storybooks and dolls and things and whatever. And they wow. looked at us like we were totally mad because no one, no one, the first big merchant, well, Disney did do merchandising in a small way, but they just didn't didn't get the whole idea that you could have products, uh, which would have made the show lucrative. Anyway, um, uh, they, they cancelled it. And before the... We were out the door. We'd literally done a deal with the ABC. But they, we couldn't use the name Magic Circle Club, so I invented, I called Adventure Island. And we did our last Magic Circle Club appearance in Brisbane. And flying back on the Convair, remember Convair? I don't. They were the pre-jet wow. from, from, uh, from Brisbane. I was sitting next to the wonderful Liz Harris, who was married to Leonard Teal, who was had been a homicide and whatever. And Liz used to appear as a guest star sometimes on Magic Circle. I was sitting next to her and I said, you know, Liz, by the time we get to the end of this flight, I'll have the outline for the new show. And I did, handwritten on a legal pad. And uh, that was what we sold to the ABC. It was an independent production. It wasn't, I wasn't, uh, Man- Godfrey Phillip owned the production company and it was independent run run independently from the ABC and the ABC hated us because we got top ratings, we got great publicity, we were enormously successful and that's anathema to the ABC <laughs> run by boring bureaucrats. So from the time we started, there were, there were people white-anting uh, the show but it, they couldn't defy success and it ran for five years, six years and when it was cancelled by the ABC and they came for no reason, it was still Outrageous. a huge success but the, you see the ABC dreary little bureaucrats that they are wanted to cancel it because they weren't running it so they cancelled the show and did a thing I'll never forget it in search of blue ribbons about a girl with a pony which rated an asterisk John Michael do do you still have some of those Mm. pieces of merchandising no I've got the books but Yes, we did a series of uh, books for Magic Zoo, of, uh, sorry, Adventure Island. And I'll tell you how stupid the ABC were. We had, we had, because we, we, we were sort of doing commercial on the ABC because we, we'd have copies of the book on the set and whatever. 
They printed, I think their initial run was something like 50,000. Well, they sold out in a week. <laughs> and we said, well, why don't we do another run? Oh, they would take this and that and whatever. And so we had only 50, but they're collector's items now anyway. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And just to remind people, at that time in Australia, there were only three television stations in total? Well, yeah, there was... Uh, four. No, four. Channel there 10 was, was four. Channel 10, Channel 7, Channel 9, the ABC. The C, yeah. yeah. And anyway... Anyway, um, the show became an award-winning, huge success. And the funny part about it, when this show that these bureaucrats replaced us with failed dismally, they had to go back to repeating old episodes of of Magic Sir, of Adventure Island. Now, the funny part about that is I kept saying, well, this is pre-colour, and I kept saying, why don't we film this? Let's let's edit it down. We'll do the five episodes and then let's do a special day where we do an hour because we'll just edit I'll edit the five episodes down to one hour and they can the five episodes will go to air during the week and then we have this one hour in colour. We'll do it on a sixteen millimetre colour film. And they what do you want to do that for? You were really ahead of your time well, even well, then. Well, I've always been ahead of my time, unfortunately, and I wish I hadn't been because they're going to have... Uh, they're going to have... I'm going to have on my gravestone, nobody ever listened to me <laughs> because this show could have been running now because it was a fairy story. If it had been on colour film, uh, it could have been... It could be running now. I mean... But they didn't, oh, no, I don't even it anyway. That's in the past. And I have no regrets. What the well, heck, you move on. Channel, the ABC hasn't changed much in its attitude, it, has it? it, it it's not a, it is what it is. It's like a bureaucracy, a top-heavy bureau, bureaucracy. It has its own culture. I don't know. And I'll tell you how crazy they are. Every, every week we'd have to do photo calls. Mm-hmm. Like what we would do, the photographer would come in with the publicity people and we'd pose from scenes from the shows and they'd take these photos, presumably for the press. But when the show ended, now over five years, that's an awful lot of photographs, hundreds, yes. thousands. So I said to the publicity department, can I have a group set of pictures, please, of the show? Of course. Oh, we can't find them. We don't know no where they way. are. They I've were all been able lost. To work that out. They were all lost. Lost or burned or put away. They, they wouldn't give it to us. The photographs of five oh, years of work. What a shame! As you can see, I have. I do have some pictures over on the wall of various ABC, of various uh, uh, Adventure Island scenes. Or but it was an interesting time. And the wonderful part is now. If people recognise me, people come up and say, oh, when I was a little kid, I watched Magic Circle or Adventure Island and mostly Adventure Island. I'm thrilled by that. I remember those shows (laughs) from my childhood. So when did this um, America, Hollywood thing Well, what happened after that was um, Mike Walsh was doing a Tonight Show in Melbourne out of Channel 7 and he... He and I, he loved what I wrote and whatever and asked me if I'd write comedy for his show, which I did, and it was very successful. And at the same time, not only doing Mike Walsh, but I did appearances on Don Lane mm-hmm. as a 
I remember Dunlane. Called Victor Venture, and I would come on to campy mad stuff. So one thing led to another, and Mike said to me when he's got his own show, why don't you come on my show? And I said, what would I do? He said, just talk. <laughs> so we, we decided to talk about what movies were coming to town and funny stories about Hollywood or whatever. Anyway, movie companies started to say, well, we'd like you to go to Los Angeles to do to cover this movie or that movie or that star or whatever, or New York or London or whatever. Finished up that I was flying around the world doing interviews with celebrities for the Mike Walt show. <laughs> then uh, uh, it sort of expanded. I did. I started covering overseas events. I covered the uh, the Charles and Diana wedding and things oh, like that. Did you pinch yourself? I mean, this was... Well, I was quite amazed that suddenly I was, you know, getting into film studios I only dreamed about and sitting down in the commissary, the canteen, and having dinner, lunch with publicity people, then going and interviewing big stars. Well, yes, it was marvellous. And then, uh, you know, I mean, I got to know, mostly it's just ships that pass in the night, hello, goodbye. But I did get to know some of the stars quite well over the years. Uh, people like Sir Roger Moore, because I covered a lot of Bond movies. And I got to know Roger quite well. He was a lovely man. And... Uh, uh, Lord Attenborough, Sir Richard Attenborough, Lord Attenborough. So you were flying back and forth at all that the time. time. I lived on planes, and, and uh, they put you up in nice hotels all the time. Except, funny enough, I must say, Kerry Packer was very generous. I mean, we always travelled in those days first class. Wow! And we always uh, stayed in nice hotels. But if I was in a, a long shoot in LA, I preferred to stay at a service department. And uh, which were much cheaper than staying at the the uh, Beverly Wiltshire or whatever. So um, I'd come back and the accounts would come in. And I remember the boss at uh, Channel Nine, Sam Chisholm, said, "I want to talk to you about your expenses." <gasps> Thought oh, I'm spending too much money. He said, "Why aren't you staying at the Wiltshire? Why aren't you staying? Why are you staying in these dumps?" I said, they're not dumps, they're <laughs> service apartments. But I said, I feel happier because I can get up and make myself a piece of toast or a cup of tea. I don't have to rely on room service. <laughs> and when you're there for four or five weeks, you know, it's it's a long time. And, of course, they, a cup of tea in one of those hotels costs you $20, you know, yeah. enormous. Whereas you just go and get a tea bag and make your own tea and it was lovely. So I must say, but I will never, I'll never say anything Con, con, uh, contrary to the to the Packers, they were they were very good. One, and I'll tell you what they did, which is something marvellous. You do the the negotiations for your contract, say in January, and the contract wouldn't come through because of the legal thing till December, the end of the year. But they agreed with everything. They never tried to diddle you. Never tried to shortchange. They were w- wonderful people. Well, and they obviously loved the job that you were doing. Well, I had, yes, but I had a wonderful thing happen to me once. Um, you know, Kerry Packer was the big fella and he'd uh, come into the, uh, sometimes come into Channel 9 Sydney where we did the Wild Show and uh, one day uh, I'd asked Chair Sam Chisholm if I could go on a show on the ABC and he said no. Because I didn't mind you going on the ABC because it wasn't really a rival to, yeah. to the commercial station. So I said, he said, no, nah, nah. Oh, I thought, oh, that's a bit unfair. But anyway, uh, 
I said, oh, why, why, you know, why won't you let me? And a voice said, because you're too valuable to us. <laughs> and in walked Kerry Packer, who was in the next office or next room. And I was, I said, oh, that's, thank you for saying that. He said, you're a funny bugger, aren't you? <laughs> you are funny. And I thought, how wonderful. And recently I wrote a letter to James Packer saying that, that uh, you know, with all the criticism hurled at the Packers, I found them wonderful to work for. I really did. I have no criticism. They were fair. And having a, having a compliment like that from Kerry Packer was like winning the Oscar. I'm sure James in particular would, would agree with that. He was very... James wrote me a lovely letter in return. No. Yeah. He, you know, it seems like there was a mutual respect there and you... Well, were... I, I, I mean, I, I like doing what I'm doing. They like what I did. In fact, I'll tell you with... <coughs> this is a funny story. When Fergie and uh, Andrew got married, we covered that. And we, our location was on top of a topless double-decker bus, right up, you know, they didn't uh-huh. have a room. They had the cameras up there. And they sent two luminaries from the network who should remain nameless to actually do the commentary. And I was there for, I'd done a lot of pre-wedding stories which had gone to air on The Walsh Show. And I was there just to, I don't know, to add the odd line or two. Anyway, there was a segment where, a sec segment where the they were signing the registry and there were no tell no pictures coming through except I don't know outside pictures of Westminster Abbey or whatever the two luminaries could not comment because <laughs> I knew having lived in London for four or five years I knew every stick upon a stone I knew all the historical stories and here I am praising myself to high heaven but it's true and suddenly they these two wide-eyed luminaries were stuck for words and the director said you you they put the camera at me and i filled in for probably i don't know 15 minutes about i'm surprised you weren't doing the actual no well no they they got they always get people that this is the rule of television or if you're going to do something that hire the person knows the least about it (laughs) i'm serious I, the person, knows nothing. <laughs> Haven't you seen some of the commentaries from New Year or events, special events? People don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. They don't know any of the facts. They have no idea. Anyway, uh, and I had I had done the Di and uh, Charles wedding, you know, a lot of that. But so uh, when we came back to Australia, Sam Chisholm said, I've thought about sending you, and then I thought, no, oh, maybe not, maybe. But he said, I'm so glad I sent you because you saved the show. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been 15 minutes of soul, two, two luminaries looking shocked, stunned. Uh, that, not uh, quite Because sure. they didn't have anything to talk about. So I did the history of Westminster Abbey. Anything that came into view, I talked about. You know, John Michael, so many people would look at your career and say, wow, I would love to have a career like that. But it seems to me that it's sort of you were at the right place at the right time with the right skill set and made it up as you went along. I call it follow the yellow brick road. You never know where it's going to lead you. And just go, oh, don't... And I would never do anything I could do. If they said to Murray, we want you to be a sports broadcaster, I'd say, forget, I know nothing about it. I could watch it on the television and go, oh, that's marvellous, isn't that a marvellous tennis match or whatever. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do a science show. There are lots of things I couldn't do. But, but a lot of people... 
this is the problem. A lot of people, they get offered the money and they'll say, uh, they'll do it and they're hopeless. Mm. But instead of saying, oh, I don't think I could do that, they, they accept anything and everything simply because they think they're fabulous. A lot of people think they're fabulous. And so you know one of the reasons Bert's so great? Bert said to me well, Bert years Newton. ago that, that he, he knew Newton, what he could do. Bert Newton. Yes. He, he, he said years ago, uh, I know what I can do and I don't do anything I can't do. And I learned from that. And don't do anything you... If you have a nerves about it, don't... You know, or not, if you don't have an expertise about something or a knowledge of something... I mean, if you wanted to do a history show, I watch history shows on cable all the time. I love them. But, but I, I, I could do that because I'm... You know, I read history, massive amounts of historical biographies and history. I could do a, probably do a good history show. I could do a great movie show. Things you can do. But there are a lot of people just leap in and do things and they are totally under-talented when it comes to the subject matter. So would you, what would you say is the basic difference between Americans and Australians as a people, having lived there? Americans don't ever... Well, I don't think Australia's beginning to change, but Americans have enormous confidence in themselves. And you do see a lot of idiots on <laughs> doing commentary, particularly on CNN. CNN seems to be the, the honeypot for idiots. But they've got all the confidence in the world to get in and do it. And, 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 you think, and they've got more front than Myers, as the saying goes. John Michael, you've always been very supportive of Israel. Where does that come from? When I was a little boy, my playmates were Jewish. Um, I didn't really know what Jewish people were. They were just lovely people. They were refugees, um, probably come from Austria, I think, in the late 30s. And I was... Uh, they were living in the same area and I just loved these kids and they loved me and we used to play. It didn't matter. I, I was a guy. It didn't matter. They were Jews. And I used to... What I loved was going home and, I mean, their homes were very European. It was totally different sort of life than I was living at home and and they were lovely people. Their mothers were lovely and, God bless her, you know, they were in Australia and not back in Austria in those days. But... Uh, no, that, that started a lifelong love affair with Jewish people. And then I've, I've, I've always admired the creative genius of, you know, in my case, of Broadway with all the wonderful Jewish songwriters and music writers and, you know, and wonderful. You've, and you've been quite involved in the Melbourne Jewish community Well, I've as done well. things for Weezo and... You know, or what is it? Why is it? We, of course, women's international in, in Zionist organisation and fundraisers and whatever. Of course, you know why not? I, I always say, I said to Michael Danby, we can never, we can never make amends for what's happened to the Jewish people. So in my little way, I do what I can, and uh, it's been a joy been a joy and I met lovely people like you and, and others, <laughs> Thank you. scores of others, yes. We just enjoy the real place that you come yeah. from. Well, I'm, I'm just, uh, no, I just uh, thank God that I met these kids and, you know, playing whatever we played. <laughs> so it's, it's... Cowboys, Indians probably. And it's and like they were lovely little boys. They'd come from Europe and... and 
I mean, I was probably their first Australian friend, I don't know, but anyway, they were a joy to know. It comes back to that thing we were talking about with relationships. relationships. Kids are all the same. Yeah. Kids just want to have friends and play games. and. But to whatever. still be friends with yeah. the kids. And my you mother were was with. thrilled that, that I had Jewish friends. She, she was so thrilled because, you know, Europe, there were, were, were Italians and, and Greeks and Maltese living around. And we weren't entirely Anglo-Saxon, as a lot of people think that we were, but we weren't entirely Anglo-Saxon. We did have ethnic people living. We're, you know, the Italians ran the, the, the fruit trees. The Greeks ran the fish and chip shops, even then, it's a long time ago. But uh, I think she was lovely, and when I would talk about the lovely things I'd eaten and, and uh, the music I'd listened to, she was thrilled. She's always giving me a veneer, a <laughs> European sophistication. And have you picked up some Yiddish words over the oh, years? Oh, yeah, well, you know, the sugar and, and uh, mensch and you name it. Some yeah. nice ones. Yeah. <laughs> Um, John Michael, you're pretty well known for a lot of the celebrity stuff and a lot of the Hollywood stuff, but you're also very um, into politics and you're very knowledgeable and um, you have very definite definite ideas and views on politics. Well, I did have a radio show for 12 years on 3AW where I could vent my spleen and, <laughs> I wasn't and reveal sure whether, my innermost thoughts. I wasn't uh, sure whether we should mention that, but now that you yeah, have, yeah. please talk to us about well, it. What happened was I was listening to the show one day and they came up with a whole lot of balls about something or other and I called in and said, you've just got that entirely wrong. And a couple of weeks later, one of the guys doing the show left and uh, the management called me up and said, oh, we heard you on... uh, uh, the phone, would you like to? Darren James actually suggested that I might be a good replacement. And I went in and, of course, Nick McCullough was my colleague and adversary. And uh, I made no excuse that I have a, a rather conservative point of view and certain values which I hold steadfast. And uh, and I had a lot of followers because I believe there's a lot of people out there that uh, that believe the same thing but don't have the voice to say it. The radical left gets plenty of exposure and the conservative right doesn't get much at all. Well, they're the silent majority. There is, and we proved that at the last election. There is a silent majority. And I do think there are many things that are pushed down our throats by the by the loudmouth left or radical left that... that uh, that people don't agree with, but they're too frightened to come out and say, that's a load of rubbish. Absolutely. Now, you've been in, you were in radio for a really long time as well. Yeah, but I'm not a radio person. I just got the job to be a commentator. If I'd have been a radio person 40 years ago, I never would have got a job. My voice is too strange. (laughs) Everybody, you know, they had the Jeff Mannion voice or the Norman Banks voice. There were people trained to be perfectly enunciated or the ABC voice. voice. And it was only since Darren Hinch 
Darren Hinch was one of the first people that had a non-radio voice became who became a, a great success on radio. I was actually a Lee Murray girl. I well, was trained by Lee Murray for you many, and, many You years. and about two dozen others. Bert went to, uh, Newton went to Lee Murray. Philip Brady went to Lee Murray. Oh, Mike Walsh went to Lee Murray. The number of people that went to Lee Murray, I never did because I never was interested in being on radio in those days and later on it didn't matter anyway because that the days of the perfectly enunciated radio announcer was gone. That's very true. And Lee Murray really was one of the last of these fabulous gentlemen. He was. Absolutely. Moved back to Australia yeah. as she got more elderly. Talk a little bit about the relationship that you had. Well, we were good friends. I mean, with that, and she loved politics and I loved politics and we loved conversation and and uh, that's, that, I mean, that's basically it. We were... She travelled. When, when I lived over, when I lived in America, I made sure she travelled a lot. And uh, I mean, she she went to London for the royal wedding. That was her. When I yeah, I took. How her exciting that you brought her over for yeah, that! Yeah, and uh, uh, the first one in Diane Child, and she she went to the. I took her to the Oscars three times, and. Um, yeah, backwards and forwards, what, backwards and forwards. What was it forwards. like for her? What did she, she say well, She you? made a lot of friends in Los Angeles and after a while it just became like she was living there. And we had very, very good, long-standing friendships with people. And uh, that was, so she, she was absorbed into a lifestyle there with the very, very dear friends who have become like almost family, well, they are family to me. Yes. And that was the great thing about it. So it wasn't like she went there and she was a tourist because although I took her to all the touristy things you do in New York and, and I mean, one of the things that was absolutely marvellous, I covered the filming of Gandhi and uh, in India and then when the film was premiered, I went to the premieres in uh, London and Washington and Los Angeles, and our umpteen cities around the world, because they were all in aid of UNICEF. And we did a coverage of that. I did it for Columbia Pictures, actually, not for Channel 9. I did it for Columbia Pictures. And uh, so I went to all these events. Well, um, I got to know Sir Richard Admiral very well and, and a, lot, a lot of the stars of the show and whatever. And uh, when uh, when we uh, it was nominated for the Oscars... I took Mum to Hollywood and, of course, won a heap of Oscars. And at the party afterwards, we, we, to which we were invited, there she was sitting with a table full of Oscars in front of her, you know, with all these... I mean, marvellous things like that. Anyway, a spin-off of that was we were invited to Atlanta where they were giving Sir Richard Admiral a special award. The Martin Luther King Foundation was giving him a special award. And uh, we were invited by Columbia Pictures. I couldn't believe it, you know. So off we go down to Atlanta and put in a beautiful hotel. It was called the Peachtree Plaza, beautiful hotel. And we went to this do. And uh, Mrs. Coretta King was there, a whole lot of uh, African-American luminaries, obviously, and Lord Attenborough and uh, Vice President, as he was then, George Bush, George... Elder. Wow, yeah. 
and we met the vice president, which was wonderful. My mother there. She just, in all my years, I, you know, I never expected to meet the vice. And he had a lovely chat to us because the accent stood out like you know. And he was he was he was lovely. So there, I mean, that's the sort of thing you just can't ever imagine. So there we were, not only talking to Mrs. Coretta King, Martin Luther King's widow, but also and Lord Attenborough, but also. Um, um, the vice president. I mean, marvelous things. Mind-boggling stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Was were you constantly living in the moment, or were there things that you wanted to do that you really had to go out and do? Well, you see, I I was so busy. Things were coming in so fast. I didn't have any time. Unfortunately, I think in many ways. It delayed me writing a lot of things because I was so busy <coughs> covering movies and, and all these, you know, premieres and Oscars and whatever. But I did, when I came back to Australia in the late 1990s, I saw The Boy From Oz with Todd McKinney and I thought, what a great idea that there's an Australian story as a musical mm. and a hit and I thought to myself, you know, I'm sure there are other Australians that would warrant a musical. So I came up with the idea of a musical about Johnny O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. And my friend who had been my producer on the Walt Show, David Mitchell, and I had discussed this. And I said to David, would you like to do work with me on a, about John, with Johnny O'Keefe? What a great idea. Next thing we knew, Kevin Jacobson said he could do it and it turned out to be a massive hit and uh, and a massive hit for David Campbell who played Johnny O'Keefe. So when we finished that, David and myself said, what are we going to do next? Oh, I don't know what. So I was living in LA and David called me up and said, I've got the next show. I said, what's that? He said, Dusty Springfield because he just read a book about Dusty Springfield. So I said, great. So I came back to Australia and we worked on that with a gentleman called Mel Morrow. And then uh, we found a backer for that, it was a money man to do the workshop, Mr John Gilbert, who had nothing to do with theatre. He's a builder, developer. And he and his wife, Barbara, are absolutely, you know the word angel, where you get people who back shows, they're yes. called angels. They are angels. How they're archangels. How did you find them to back because the show? Because it was my, the producer of the show, it was uh, with the non-existent show. I mean, we had the script, but no show. And uh, it was Dennis Smith, who's a... He, 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 I've known Dennis for years. He used to produce a show at Channel 10 called The Go Show. And he does now Go Show revivals at the Palais in St Kilda, which are very successful. Anyway, uh, Dennis Smith said um, uh, to John Gilbert one night, oh, I'm looking for money to do this. And John Gilbert said, well, how much money do you need? I mean, how wonderful. He didn't even have to picture. I love that. I love it that. It was a miracle. So we did Dusty. <coughs> and then I decided I wanted to do a show about uh, Bobby Darren. I'd read a book called um, Dream Lovers by Dodd Darren who's the son of John, uh, uh, Bobby Darren and Sandra D. I thought, what a great story. And it is a great story. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, I got to work on that with my cousin Frank. And it was a 
sitting there and John Bacter came in again and a lady called Barbara Harper who worked for John took it to Gordon Frost and they loved the idea but unfortunately they didn't do it for eight or nine years. It was I nearly went mad waiting for them to do the show. I mean, I thought I won't live to see this show ever produced. It was really wonderful once it was, it was a done. huge when it happened. But the funny part, we only did Sydney and Melbourne, and then David Campbell, who again played uh, uh, Bobby Darren, said, oh, I don't want to do it anymore. And they, instead of hiring someone else to fill in, they just closed the show. That's it. They must so have worked at the ABC at one stage. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've never been able to work out. Well, no, none of us can work out why you'd close the show that was packing them in. I mean, people were lining up to get cancellations. Mm. We packed out the State Theatre at the Arts Centre every single night. And they didn't tour it everywhere. They never tour it. And the thing about that, what you make, where you make a lot of money with a show is it or a consistent income is if the show is is goes into the uh, non-professional theatre and it's done by amateur groups mm-hmm. and and the royalties can be quite good if you if that happens well that's not happening because the show's hanging in space somewhere Dodd Darren who thought it was going to be his father's legacy is disappointed because he wants the show to go on. Of course. Anyway, I thought, I can't worry about this anymore. So I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do next? So I splashed around my swimming pool one day and I thought, the Andrews sisters. Brilliant. Because I thought of Jersey Boys, which was a great story, although... Uh, Frankie Valley did so. Somebody said to Frankie Valley, "What a great story!" And and Frankie Valley said, "It's all BS, but it's making us a fortune." <laughs> well, I, anyway, I got the Andrew sister story, and it, I I knew nothing about them. I when I read this story, it was a fascinating story. Which mm-hmm. would, see, it's no point in writing something if the story isn't good. Yep. You know, I mean, otherwise you just have someone singing the songs without any depth to it. So I finished that. It's called Swing Sisters, and we're in the process of getting that up. It probably won't be on a stage for till 2022 because you can't get theatres. So I've done that, and now I'm working on a show about a great Aboriginal tenor that everyone's forgotten about called Harold Blair, who came from a mission station in Queensland and worked in cane fields, and his story of his rise to success is just incredible. And uh, uh, he died, unfortunately, much too young, but a wonderful story about um, about Aboriginal Indigenous people, about um, the, the ambition, because he, 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 had, he had nothing going for him, nothing. And he became this, you know, classy singer, were adored by the public of the time. Now, interestingly enough, you know, we said before about people forgetting things. Very few people remember him or even heard of him. Or have even heard of him, which and is yet, really... what a story. Um, yes. He was discovered um, by an Australian opera singer who was a star in the United States called Marjorie Lawrence. Now, Marjorie Lawrence got uh, polio and used to do sing opera standing in a, on a frame under her costume. She was Wagnerian. Wow. And one of the greats. And she came out to Australia in 1944 during the war. My God, how she got here, I don't know. She came from there and she was 
in Queensland and a, a friend of, of Harold Blair's who was a little tough union guy <laughs> said said to you've got said to her you have to hear this because yeah. Harold was working just as a labourer. Yeah, a cane cutter. Yeah, a watch cutter? A cane cutter. A cane cutter. And he happened, people who worked with him happened to realise his sing. talent. And he used to sing as a kid with the various groups in that part of the was a fun road because he lived on a mission station and he didn't have a lot of money and to raise money they'd do concerts and things and he'd sing and the money had come in and at one stage he was in the Salvation Army banging a drum. I mean, he was he was a his story was wonderful, wonderful. So hopefully you can get him into some Australian history books. Well, and have he's, more there's kids. been a wonderful book written about him and he is on. I think he's on the Wikipedia and whatever. And I think the ABC did a documentary about him. Um, but I'm I'm doing my research through the book that was written by about him. And uh, it, it's a wonderful story of a man overcoming... Uh, I mean, he never, he never... He doesn't complain. He, he became an activist for the Aboriginal cause. He did, because he went to America and he actually performed in front of the United Nations. Wow. Believe it or not, there was a big... Wow. Big cotton, yeah. And he's still not in the history books in and, Australia. Uh, yeah, anyway, he, he, he was very much influenced by the civil rights movement in America and he could have stayed there, but he felt he had to come back here and work with his people here. So he did. So anyway, it's a good story. Sounds so great. Again, I don't and, know whether it'll be yeah, on. And there. I mean, the Andrews sisters, that's just well, they were terrific. But you see, yeah, well, the Andrews, what's great about the Andrews sisters um, is that they're sort of iconic figures linked to World War II mm. with all the wonderful songs they sang during that period. So the first half, it has a lot to do with World War II, with their uh, fundraise, bond, what they call bond, war bonds, at, at appearing in sort of thousands and they made 20-something movies. Wow. In fact, uh, interesting enough, they used to say at the studios, put the Andrew sisters in a movie, the box office will go up by 30% because there was no television in those days. Yes. So if you wanted to see them, you could hear them on the radio. They were on the radio all the time. But to actually see them, you had to go to the movies. Yes. So they, they were like a enticement for people to go to the, the movies to really, see the Andrews. Really, really. And they were great performers. They really knew how to sing. There were three girls. Uh, the eldest was Laverne. She really put the group together. She was the piano player. And she really put them together when they were really kids. Then there was... Um, Maxine and Maxine turned out to be a very very smart uh, woman who at one stage after they'd retired became the dean of a woman's college and then there was Patty. Patty was the blonde the central sort of centre figure the soloist and uh, she was um, she was uh, Miss Vivacity mm. I mean when you, when you see them working she stands out and she sort of hung the group together. But it's, a, it's an interesting story. It's a story. great story, but the way you weave stories, like Dream Lovers was fabulous because of the way you put it together. I Did mean, you the, hear that, folks? Now, if it comes back, you have to go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> because, look, the songs are good anyway. There's this good story there, but it's really the way you put it together well, that makes it a good musical. I'll tell you what, with jukebox musicals, which they, that's what they call them, whether it's Shout, Dusty, Dream Lover, 
uh, Swing Sisters or whatever. Now, the the Harry Blair style show will be original music uh, written by uh, our friend Warren Wills. But what it is with a lot of musicals today, not the musicals of the past, not Rodgers and Hammerstein or Rodgers and Hart or uh, Irving Berlin or Jerome Kern or, or Cole Porter, um, um, you know, Ip Harburg. There were so many great songwriters. They, they would have a show packed with memorable songs, which would be recorded by the pop stars of the day. So those shows are filled with songs. Now we've got to the stage where they only have maybe one song you can remember, if as far as the footpath. Yes. You're walking out of the theatre and you're thinking, whereas every song in those old musicals like Oklahoma, Annie Get Your Gun, you know, um, Silk Stockings, whatever, All whatever. memorable. You remember you'd be singing them under the shower for days. <laughs> yes. In fact, that was... That was the way that the artists and repertoire men looked at it. Would the would people whistle or sing these songs under the shower? And that's why they would get people like Bing Crosby or Joe Stafford or Frank Sinatra or whoever of that ilk of that day to record them. And so by the show time the show opened, audiences knew the hits they'd heard them yes. on the radio. Well, we don't have a hit parade anymore, and so these songs. You know, there's no way to promote original songs. You have to see the show to hear the song. But what it is with a lot of... I don't know what it is with a lot of young composers that write musicals. They seem to want to impress you with their brilliance, but not... See, Lionel... I'll use this example. Lionel Bart could not read or write music. He, he could sort of finger a, a tune out on a piano... He used to hum his tunes to a musician who would write them down. Mm. Now, have a look at Oliver. Mm. Every song you remember. Yes. yes. You remember. You, you go to true. a lot of musicals today, that, that not the, 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 the original musicals, you can't remember most of the songs you can't remember. Mm. Whereas if you see a song, that's why shows like ours have been successful, like the Carol King musical was successful, and why the, the Jersey Boys... And many others are successful because people can know the songs, not when they're walking out of the theatre, but when they're walking into the theatre, so, they, they know the songs. And Warren Wills is fabulous. So really looking forward to, to hearing your yeah, collaboration well, you know, on that. Looking forward to about three years. Because, <laughs> I mean, it'd be wonderful if you, you workshop them and they can say, oh, we're opening next week. But theatres, it's a big problem, booking yeah. theatres. Well, John Michael the energy that you have about you in whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's radio, whether it's television with these theatre and musicals, is just fabulous. The other thing I really just wanted to touch on with you, because it's also um, the most important thing, no matter what you do with your life or what kind of work you do, is the relationship that you have with people. And you are one of the few people, the few wonderful people that have relationships that go back to the year dot and I know those relationships are important to you could you just talk a little bit about how those about these long-term relationships because you know that not many people have well, that many and also how it enhances your how it has well I enhanced. was an only child and I treasured friendship 
And to me, friends were not just something. I mean, friends are more than friends, if you know what I mean. Yes. And and uh, that's why, I, I don't know, I just treasure friendships very, very much, very, very much. I think it's wonderful when someone chooses you to be their friend. Yes. And, and confides in you and shares the ups and downs of life. I, I just... Because you've met, you meet new people every day. Yes, but you don't meet, mate, my friends, I must say, the ones that, you know, they go back decades, but, I mean, what I say to to, to people is that if you've got a, a good friend, tell them how much they mean to you. Don't, I've been to a lot of funerals lately, <laughs> part of the course, and I often say I'm so glad I said at some stage, you, you know, you mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's very important to let your family and your friends know that you care for them. Not never, never assume that they know. Yes. Never assume that you know that. Oh, I didn't tell Dad I loved him because he knew. No, don't assume that. Say, Dad, I love you, and and that's very important. Absolutely. You know, say the words. It's it, it, it's very important, and I think one of the problems today. With the way families are today, a lot of people never hear those words from their mother, their father, or the father or mother never hear it from children. Everybody assumes without actually saying the words. And I'm a great one for for verbalising your emotions. Mm. Very important. And uh, I, um, you know, I'm so glad I've said that to people who are no longer with us, you know, because... Uh, they knew at least I was, you know, I cared. Absolutely. And I, they cared for me, which is, that's very important, that people care for you as well. And I was also going to ask you, is there anything else that you wish you had done that you hadn't, but you're still doing it? Yeah, I would have liked to have done, I've done five terrible movies or six terrible <laughs> movies, bit parts, sort of featured role. I would have liked to have done a really good role in a movie. You know, I'm blessed that I've done the. I've had fun doing them. They were all terrible, but. <laughs> but you could still write one. No, I don't know. If you think it takes a long time to get a stage show up, I mean, if you read read uh, Bruce Beriston's book about you know one of our great directors about the hell he's been through in his life trying to get money up for movies. I mean, it's a nightmare. Yes. And and you you know too too difficult. If you're even in Hollywood, look. One of the things you used to get me in Hollywood was meeting. You know, as I say, everybody has a script in their back pocket. With a number of people that had film projects that they've been waiting to get going for years. But, John Michael, it's, as you said before, there are people with theatre projects they've been waiting to get done for years. I'm not bad with theatre projects. Yeah, but you ran into yeah. this fabulous so you investor have to be, that made yes, it easy. You have to be a go-getter. I mean, it's no good. You have to be a promoter. You have to be able to pitch your, your, um, your product. Don't just think you can write it. And In other words, you have to be a salesman. You've got to get out and sell the product. I have a good friend and acting coach in Los Angeles, Bernard Hiller. I don't know if you came across him, but he says, you're not in the shy business, you're in show business. Business, exactly. And I'm, you know, the funny part, I was a very shy little boy. 
I was a, I was not a pusher. I never went out there and, you know, I was always hiding up the back sort of per kid and uh, uh, embarrassed if, if, if anyone called out my name and uh, uh, focused attention on me. So for me to come this far is a miracle. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I know I'm very lucky. And somebody said to me, you'll love this, somebody said to me, in fact, there's a book coming out at the end of the year um, called Australian Musicals. Yeah. Written by Peter Pinney, who's a wonderful uh, producer. He wrote a lot, and he wrote a wonderful Australian musical years ago, but nobody would do them in the commercial theatre. He and his partner, Don Batty, used to hire church halls and put them on, and they were wonderful shows. But commercial producers, he wouldn't touch a, an Australian show with a barge pole. Anyway, uh, uh, he and a, another gentleman called Peter Wiley Johnson have done a book called The History of the Australian Musical and that's coming out at the end of the year and I'm looking to see that. But people have said to me, why aren't there more Australian musicals? Well, well you've got some in your back pocket yeah. that you're happy to pull out. But but, uh, you know what I've said? Not enough Jews. And the reason, <laughs> no, because look... Look at the American theatre. Yes. Thank God for the Jewish writers of the great American theatre songbook. Yes. You know, that, that, I just am in awe of these wonderful bands. So many of them started off in very straight and poor circumstances that became legendary. They and, had a love and a talent. And, and used to bang out a tune in a music store on a, you know, a upright piano and sell sheet music and went on to become legends and we're still singing their songs. So I always say that, you know, what we owe to those wonderful, we're still, you know, the only one I can think who wasn't Jewish was Cole Porter. Everybody else was. That's And, and still the same goes today. Huge contributions oh, to exactly. the arts generally. We'll never know how... You know, how, in fact, I believe there's a documentary coming out about Fiddler on the Roof. Really? Yeah, uh, about how it got up and how it, you know, it became a legend it's become. And I saw Zero Mustel do it and I saw Topol do it. I've seen it about six times. I love it. And I must tell you a wonderful story. I was staying with a friend in New York on Central Park South at a wonderful block of apartments, one of those super-duper Darth Deco apartment blocks. And going downstairs, I got in, the elevator door opened and who was standing there but Zero Mostel. Wow. And I was, I was awestruck. And I said to him, after, as we we're going down, I said, oh, Mr. Mostel, I think you're marvellous. And he said, yes, I am. <laughs> I absolutely love that story. John, Michael, this has been an absolute delight. I am so thrilled that you've come on, Lily, High on Life, and we've been able to do this interview. Well, it's been a pleasure, Lily. Thank you. Looking